You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you can see, I want to encourage you to have your Bibles on hand as we're going to be in several different texts this morning um, to help us better understand some of the things that we've been seeing the last couple of weeks in Revelation. Um, we've talked uh, from Revelation 15 and 16 the last couple of weeks and um, saw the, the worship taking place by the seashore in heaven with um, God revealing beyond sufficient reason for mankind to fear him and to give him glory uh, in order to avoid his just wrath. And so we saw God's sovereignty, we saw God's holiness, his justice, his, his trustworthiness, um, his righteousness, all reasons for why we should fear God and worship him and, and repent of our sins and turn to him. And um, we saw last week what happens to those who don't, and we saw the bowls being poured out. Um, we saw God being intentional in his efforts to draw mankind to repentance and judging him fairly if he fails to do so. And so we, um, we look specifically at some reasons that, that God, or some ways that God tries to draw men to repent. Uh, we talked about being fearful of a God who judges the wicked, uh, wrath coming from God on idolatry through the, the first bold judgment. We saw the, the call for us to be thankful for a God who is right in his judgments. We saw in bowl two and three how God is very calculated and appropriate in the judgment that he brings. We saw the need to be mindful of God's acts that should lead us to repentance in bowl four, uh, that God's kindness and his discipline are designed for repentance, and we saw mankind continually fail to repent, and that's where we'll come back to today. We saw uh, being careful to blame God for our misfortunes, that a lot of times our lack of rep- repentance brings this type of activity in our life in bowl five. Being discerning in regards to miraculous signs in bowl six, we saw that Satan certainly has the power to do miracles and that we need to be on guard and careful uh, about believing such things. And we said, be watchful for a God who is coming as promised in bowl seven to, to make sure that we are clothed and ready for God to come and shake the earth one last time. The application we saw last week is, what approach are you taking to repent regularly of your sins in your life? And I felt like we couldn't really give um, the due attention to that based on time last week. And so I wanted to set aside some time this week to look at the role of confession in the life of a believer, the, the idea of repenting regularly even after our salvation. So we'll look at the discipline of confession and repentance today from some various passages of Scripture. Our summary sentence for today Regular confession brings greater sensitivity to the presence of our sin and through the Spirit's power allows us to experience cleansing and healing, which should lead to a decrease in its regularity in our lives. Regular confession brings greater sensitivity to the presence of our sin and through the Spirit's power allows us to experience cleansing and healing which should lead to a decrease in its regularity in our lives. For our kids, confessing our sins helps us to heal from our sins. So obviously the idea here is that part of the reason that we continue to confess as Christians is that it keeps us mindful of the sinful behavior that's still in our life. If we're constantly uh, self-examining ourselves, then we are seeing the areas where we still fall short of God's glory, where we still need to be sanctified, where we still need to be uh, corrected and fixed and rebuked and changed into that new creature. And so um, it's certainly an act of humility for us to examine ourselves, to see where we continue to err in our ways and and how to um, reach out to God to, to see those things fixed. So regular confession brings that greater sensitivity to our sin. And then through the Spirit's power who indwells us, we can experience the cleansing of the guilt that comes from those, those behaviors and those acts, right? So confession is meant to be a, a cleansing aspect for us uh, to, to remove some of the guilt that we feel from our actions. I mean, that happens in our earthly relationships just like it does in our, in our heavenly relationship with our Father. Um, we, we confess and we repent of things with each other to, to free ourselves from the guilt, to experience a, a cleansing between the two of us in our relationship. And a healing aspect takes place as well. And then the idea is that through the Spirit's power, sin begins to decrease in our life. That particular sins begin to decrease in our life because we're regularly examining ourselves, we're being convicted about it, we're confessing it, we're repenting of it, we're dealing with it, we're seeking to produce uh, change in our life through the confession. 
We're going to unpack that today and kind of see what Scripture has to say about that idea. So regular confession brings greater sensitivity to the presence of our sin, and through the Spirit's power allows us to experience cleansing and healing, which should lead to a decrease in its regularity in our lives. As a way of introduction, just so we're all kind of on the same page, sin obviously is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. It's our failure to be what God wants us to be, to act the way that God wants us to act, to feel the things that God wants us to feel. We need to examine ourselves regularly to identify sin in our life in order to help better help others with their sins. In Luke chapter 6, A lot of times people misunderstand this passage and think it calls you to do one thing versus the other. In Luke chapter 6, verse 39, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now most people read that and think that that the implication from that passage is that we're to kind of stay out of other people's business and just worry about ourselves, right? Like we need to be worried about the things that we're doing wrong and not worry about the things that other people are doing wrong. Um, But that's only half of the message there. The the message there is is that we should be self-examining ourselves, working towards sanctification in our life so that we can actually go and help others fight their sin as well, right? Like the, the, the command there is not stay out of other people's business. The command there is get yourselves right so that you can accurately and adequately help people in their business too. Right? The idea here is that we're to, we're to be working towards our own sanctification so that we can be qualified to help someone else in theirs. Man, Jesus says, you need, to be, you need to be self-examining yourself, seeking forgiveness for yourself, confessing things for yourself so that you can then help others identify where they fall short too. Same idea in Psalm chapter 51. This is the, the famous psalm where, where David is crying out to God after his sin with Bathsheba. And in Psalm chapter 51, verse 13, after talking about a desire for God to forgive him and to cleanse him, to not cast him away, to not take the Holy Spirit from him, but to restore to him the joy of his salvation, he says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And David connects the fact here that his own forgiveness and his own confession is tied to his ability to teach others to do the same thing. That ultimately it's about him coming back to God and helping others come back to God too. All right, so it's important for us to see that we examine ourselves, we confess, we repent regularly so that we are identifying sin in our life and it makes us far more receivable by somebody else if we go to them to help them address sin in their life too. If we're, if we're developing this pattern and demonstrating this pattern to others that, hey, we're just as concerned about the sin in our life as we are in the lives of others, man, we're far more receivable that, by that person. That person is far more welcoming to our rebuke and to our exhortation if we're demonstrating a desire to have our own selves changed. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience. That's the definition by Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology book. It's a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience. Repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. Thomas Watson, a Puritan preacher, said, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Two aspects of of confession and repentance there. One, the Holy Spirit humbles us inwardly for us to see ourselves in our own sin to confess it. And then that leads to visible outward change through that repentance. We show our repentance to be genuine by the fruit produced in our life after we confess. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, it says, But when we saw, when he, Jesus, saw many of the Pharisees 
and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The idea there that, that we are to show repentance to be genuine by the fruit produced in our life after we confess it. There should be a, a visible demonstration that our repentance was genuine. All right, my confession shows my salvation to be real. In the same way we don't stop believing after salvation, we don't stop confessing. Okay, so in our discussion groups this morning, we were talking about the fact that some people mistakenly think that because we're forgiven of our sins, that we're just now off the hook. We don't have to confess our sins anymore. Um, that, That we don't need to seek regular forgiveness from God for the things that we do. But in the same way, we don't say that we believe once and we're saved and then we can stop believing that we have to continue believing. The same idea is true here, that we continue to confess our sins because now we're even more sensitive to our sins after salvation, okay? So just a a means of introduction there. We're wanting to examine ourselves so that we can better help others grow in their Christian faith. All right, let's jump right into our notes. Number one, confess and repent to be forgiven and saved. That's obviously the first reason why, why we talk about confession and repentance. We talk about it from the aspect of being saved from our salvation. And, and we're going to talk about two different aspects of, of our confession and repentance and two different relationships that we see God in, um, in both of these aspects. First of all, we're talking about God as judge when we talk about our salvation. We're talking about what is, what is called a judicial forgiveness. It's a courtroom type forgiveness that we seek through our salvation. For our kids, we confess our sins to be saved. This is God. Um, excusing us, letting us off the hook, removing us from condemnation that, that we rightfully deserve for breaking his law. This is God in his kindness and in his mercy excusing us, but not excusing the sin completely, right? Transferring the consequences of that sin to Jesus Christ. It's what we remember this week leading up to the, the resurrection celebration next Sunday. Right? It's, it's what we celebrate, Jesus on the cross taking our punishment for the sin uh, that we deserved. It's a judicial forgiveness. God as judge declares us not guilty and then goes even further to declare us righteous because of the work of Jesus. And when God forgives us in this way, he, number one, forgives us forever of all of our sins. Not just the sins that we've committed up to the point of our salvation, but he forgives us of all of our sins. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalms 103. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your, your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalms talks about how God forever forgives us of our sins, right? That, that he separates them as far as the east is from the west. He does not hold them against us. He does not count us towards them. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. All right, so when we talk about our confession and our repentance leading up to salvation, that point in time where we, we cross over from death to life, we cross from darkness into light. We're talking about God forgiving us of all of our sins. Past sins, present sins, future sins, sins that we have no idea that we've even committed, God forgives all of those things. And he does so by the work of Christ. Number two, God forgives us forever because of the work of Christ. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as far as his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had, no, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his off, offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressions. This is Jesus and the work of him who saves us. Paul talks about the same idea in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. As, as we've said before, God or Paul builds this argument all through Romans 1, 2, and 3, how we are guilty before God, that we can't make it right, that we can't do good. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's some Old Testament imagery there as, as we're saying that, that God has passed over the sins of the Old Testament, right? Like he didn't, he didn't just wipe them away clean. He delayed his judgment, brings that judgment upon Jesus. The idea there of the propitiation of our sins, it's the same Old Testament word for the mercy seat upon the Ark of the Covenant where their sacrifices would have been offered. And so Jesus serves as the great sacrifice to make sure that our sins are forgiven forever. And that leads us to Romans chapter 8, where we find out that there is never condemnation for those that are in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Passage reminds us there that we are set free, we are saved, we are no longer condemned because Jesus has been perfect for us. Bottom of Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from that type of love, right? Nothing can separate us, nothing can remove that love that God has for us. If we skip over to Ephesians chapter 2, 
We're reminded of that condition before our confession and repentance. You're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was our precondition before salvation. And then you skip to 13. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1 um, is another great passage to look at. We won't take time to do so. Verses 17 through 19. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So to summarize all that, um, at salvation, we are declared righteous, no longer condemned to die or destined for hell. As we confess and repent of our sin, we receive God's kindness, mercy, and forgiveness based on the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. All of our past, present, and future sin is atoned for, even the sins we are not aware that we commit. All right, so that's, that's how we understand confession and repentance leading up to our salvation. Right, it's, it's the gospel story that, that most of us are very familiar with. It's the gospel story that we need to constantly remind ourselves of. Because oftentimes in our sin, we can, be, um, we can, we can fall into states of depression and, and, and ultimately feel like there's this, this guilt hanging over us. And it's worth reminding ourselves consistently that there is no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. If we put our faith and trust in him, we're declared righteous. We're not condemned to die. We're not destined for hell. His kindness and his mercy and his forgiveness are given to us. Past, present, future sins are atoned for. Even the sins that we're not even aware of that we commit. And that, that's kind of the, the part that we're, we, we all stay familiar with. We recognize this is, this is what it takes to be saved. When we talk about confession and repentance, it means salvation. It's the second part where oftentimes we, we fail, I think, to, to live the way that we should, that ongoing confession and repentance. And I know it's a huge weakness for me as well. And the reason that it's a weakness for, for a lot of us is that it requires humility. And, and one of the sins that, that continues to remain that we have to battle constantly until Jesus comes back is the sin of pride. Right? We don't want to admit that we're not okay. We don't want to admit that we still sin. We don't want to admit that we're at fault or that we fail. We want to paint this picture that we are being sanctified and we're being glorified and, and that things are okay in our life. So that leads us into number two. We confess and repent to be forgiven and changed. So first off, we confess and repent to be forgiven and saved. Now we're talking about confessing and repenting to be forgiven and changed. And this is where we think of uh, God as our father and we're talking about parental forgiveness. So now we're outside the courtroom. We've left the courtroom. We've gone home with our dad. And when we fail him moving forward, the, the confession and the repentance that's taking place is similar to how we see a parent and a child relationship playing out. The child is not in jeopardy of not being in relationship with the father, right? Like it, it, there, there's, not, there's not a jeopardy uh, in place there. It's the idea of, of right relationship, healthy relationship, joyful relationship that gets fixed through confession and repentance. For our kids, we confess our sins to grow as a Christian. We confess our sins to grow as a Christian. Number one, salvation removes the penalty of sin, but not the presence of sin. All right, so we're accurate in thinking in terms that we've been forgiven of our sins, the penalty of sin, the condemnation of sin, but the presence of sin still remains until Jesus comes back. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I mean, there's this ongoing battle. Sin still remains until Jesus comes back. He's writing to believers here. You find that out later in 1 John. He's writing to believers here. He's reminding them that sin is still present. Sin still needs to be confessed and repented of in order for that forgiveness to be enjoyed like it should be. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 32, because we're going to look at this one a little bit more in depth. Psalm chapter 32 is a, is a great psalm about 
forgiveness and repentance and the blessings that come from it. Psalm chapter 32, let's look first at verses 1 through 2. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. <coughs> Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Man, right off the bat there, I wrote down in my notes, we enjoy great blessing through confession. Confession brings great blessing into the life of a believer. David says that here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, who, who doesn't have sin being counted against him, no iniquity at all. Verse 3, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I wrote down in my notes, we have a responsibility to not conceal or hide our sin. When we do so, it robs us of our joy. When we try to hide our sin, tuck it away, keep it hidden, it robs us of joy and blessing. We'll come back to Psalm 32 here in just a second, but in Proverbs chapter 28, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And the Proverbs here are reminding us that there's real danger in concealing our sins. There's real danger in trying to hide that sin, protect that sin, guard that sin. It needs to be confessed, needs to be exposed, needs to be brought into the light. Back in Psalm chapter 32. There's blessing through confession. There's a responsibility to not conceal or hide our sin. We also have a responsibility to acknowledge and confess our sin. I acknowledge my sin, verse 5, to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David reminds us we have a responsibility to confess our sins, and, and there's a lot of different ways this, this fleshes itself out, and I want to share some of these with you. You may want to jot some of these down. First of all, we confess our own sins. We confess our own sins. First uh, John chapter 1, 5 through 10, we've already looked at that. Psalm chapter 51, this is David confessing his sins. David's a believer. David is a man after God's own heart. Um, he, he's saved in the terms that we use. Right, but he's committed sin against Bathsheba, and what's he doing? He's crying out to God for healing. He's crying out to God through confession about his sin. We certainly have a responsibility to confess our own sins to God, and really all sins should be confessed to God because it's against God. David says that. Against you, you only have I sinned. But secondly, we're called to confess our sins against others. So not only is, is confession towards God supposed to be an active role that the believer participates in, where we're, we're, uh, we're confessing our sins to God, we're also called to confess our sins against others. We're to confess those to each other. Matthew chapter 5. This isn't the same as accountability where we're, we're confessing our sins to each other for help and encouragement. It's when we've offended somebody, we confess the fact that we've done that. Matthew chapter 5 verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at an altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I mean, this is where there's broken fellowship, whether it's you that's done the sin or whether somebody else has done the sin to you. Whatever it is, you're supposed to go and get that right. If somebody has something, an issue against you, you've done something, you've sinned against them, go and make that right, Jesus says. Right, we have a responsibility to confess our sins to those that we've sinned against. Luke chapter 19, verse 8. This is the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus gets to the end of his uh, dialogue with Jesus, and it says in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. And Zacchaeus realizes, I've done some great wrongs here. And he could have easily just confessed that to Jesus and said, hey, I've been a dishonest man. I need to be saved. But he, he desires to go even further. Not only has he sinned against God, he's sinned, he's sinned against his fellow man. And he wants to go and make that right. And the implication here is that to go and make it right, to go and present money back to those that he's defrauded, it's going to necessitate a conversation of why this is happening, why this is taking place. Why are you bringing money to me? 
Well, it's because I've wronged you, right? It's because I was dishonest to you. We have a responsibility to confess our sins that we've done against other people. Acts chapter 24, verse 16. Paul says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Paul says, I'm working to keep my conscience clear in my actions towards mankind. And where, where I fall short, I want to make it right. We confess our own sins. We confess our sins against others. We confess our sins to others. James chapter 5, verse 16. This is where I'm confessing my sin, not that I've done against you, but confessing my sin to close people that are, that are on this walk with me to help hold me accountable. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Right? This, is, this is beyond just me sinning against a coworker and confessing that and trying to make it right. This is me stepping back and confessing it to others who have, who have joined alongside of me, who are willing to take the log out of their own eye and help me with the speck that's in mine. Right? <clears throat> this is somebody who, who I can trust to pray for me to help me in the healing process of moving beyond this, having this sin decrease in regularity in my life. Hebrews chapter 3 talks about the necessity of having someone like this in your life to guard you from being hardened to sin. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And the need to confess with other people in our life to be completely open and honest, to not hold back, to not conceal, to not hide. Because if we do that, it does come back to bite us. We've, we've read in Psalms here, I mean, you hide your sin and the blessings start to decrease and, and God has to step in and discipline. And I was reminded of this yesterday when, when I'm sitting and studying and, and, and a, a friend of mine from our neighborhood comes to me and I'm asking him how things are going at his church. And he said, we had to, we had to dismiss our pastor recently. Like within the last couple of weeks, we had to dismiss him for moral failure. Moral failure. I mean, another one of these stories where you hear of a pastor who, who has wandered away and has chosen to believe a lie about sin. Man, and it's a reminder to me that I'm not protected from that type of behavior in my own life if I try to conceal and hide sin in mine. That I have to be forthcoming. I have to be open and honest. I have to be regularly confessing sin in my life or else my heart gets, my heart gets hard. And deceitfulness sets in. And then I do things that I never thought that I could imagine doing. Man, the confession of sin is meant to keep us sensitive to sin in our life. And through the Spirit's power to experience healing and cleansing and forgiveness that leads to a decrease in its regularity in my life. We need to confess our sins to people that are close to us, that can help hold us accountable, that can pray for us, so that this type of behavior doesn't set in. Number, uh, the last one, we confess the sins of others as well. We won't get into these passages. These are primarily Old Testament passages, but in Daniel chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9, and Nehemiah chapter 9. So chapter 9 and all three of those books are important. Daniel 9, Ezra 9, Nehemiah chapter 9. All three of those men are confessing the sins, not just of themselves, but of their people. The people of Israel, they are confessing the sins of the people of Israel to God. And I certainly think that maybe at times where that's appropriate as well. Not so much in the national context where, where that, that may be appropriate for us to confess the sins of our nation, but I think certainly to confess the sins of our church potentially as well. Ways where we have failed God as a church, we may need to confess uh, on behalf of each other. Jumping back to Psalm chapter 32. Great blessing that comes from confession, responsibility not to conceal or hide our sins, responsibility to acknowledge and confess our sins. We should desire change through that confession and through that forgiveness. This is a desire for holiness, not just an escape from the consequences. Psalm chapter 32, verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Okay, David is describing a type of confession that leads to intimate fellowship. 
Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. What he's describing here is a type of confession or repentance that leads to life change that doesn't require parameters to be put in place that forces you to act a certain way. Right, like this, this is a change in heart that causes me to act willfully in obedience and not because I have instruments strapped to me that force me to be obedient. David says, man, I want, you to, I want, a, I want, a, I want a lifestyle where I'm confessing and repenting of sin. I desire this for others where through confession, I desire holiness in my life, not just for the consequences of sin to be lifted. Right, this is a lesson that our kids have to learn that they don't just confess and they're not just sorry when they get caught or when consequences to their actions are being applied. It's, it's helping them to connect the fact that the behavior that's desired is good for them. It's good for them. And, and David says, I want, to, I want to be the type of person who, who lives and acts in a certain way, not because I'm forced to, but because I desire to. We should desire change through confession and forgiveness. And then lastly, we should expect discipline if we fail to confess our sins. We should expect God to discipline us. If we're a child of God, we should expect God to discipline us if we fail to confess our sins. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. To avoid the sorrows that come from sin, we confess, repent, and turn from those sins. Salvation removes the penalty, but it doesn't remove the presence of sin. That's why confession, ongoing confession is necessary to keep us sensitive to sin in our life so that we're seeking to rid ourselves of that sin, okay? Through the Holy Spirit's power, we can see change in our life. Not perfection, but change. Number two, salvation removes the threat of condemnation, but not the warning of discipline and consequences, Hebrews 12 is the passage that talks about God disciplining his children that he loves. That it's a sign of salvation if you start to sin regularly that discipline comes upon you. And it's a sign of concern. It should be a sign of doubt towards one's salvation if they can live in sin and not be disciplined for it. God warns us that a lack of confession may affect us as believers. Specifically, it can affect our prayer life. Psalm chapter 66, verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Here, the psalmist says that if I'm concealing sin in my life, God's not obligated to listen to my prayer life. That if I'm not willing to be open and honest about the things that I'm doing that are wrong, God may not be willing to listen to the things that I'm, I'm praying to him. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Man, God doesn't desire our prayers if we're turning our ear away from, from doing and hearing his law. John chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus' implication here is that obedience leads to answered prayer. That, that you should not expect answered prayer if you're not seeking to be obedient to his word. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And this, this passage should be convicting to us as husbands that the, the way that we interact with our wives shapes how, um, how our prayer life is going. That, that our prayers can be hindered if we're failing in our relationship as a spouse. Now, here's the question. I read these passages, and I, and I, and I see what they are, and I hear them, and, there, and there's really nothing confusing about them. But the question that I have to ask myself is, would I even notice 
a hindered prayer life if I was doing these things, right? Like, is my prayer life done in such a way where I would step back and say, whoa, something's not right here. Like, I feel like my prayer life is being hindered. I need to step back and examine myself a little bit. I need to step back and see if I'm concealing sin or, or if I've mistreated my wife or if there's something that's causing God to, to be disconnected from me in my prayers. Man, I'm afraid that a lot of us wouldn't even notice a hindered prayer life in light of our sin. That that, that checkpoint isn't even a checkpoint for us, right? Like it's like having a car with a check engine light that doesn't work. Like, like that, that thing's supposed to be an indicator, a red flag, like, hey, things aren't okay in your life because your prayer life's not, not right. Like your prayers aren't being heard. Your prayers aren't being answered. A lot of us aren't tapped into that, that um, checkpoint, though. A lot of us, we wouldn't know the difference between a hindered prayer life and an unhindered prayer life. That's a question that I have to ask myself, too. Is my prayer life such where I would be, I would, I would be concerned and caused to step back to evaluate my life? Or, or would I not even notice what a hindered prayer life looks like? God warns us and says, a lack of confession of sin can lead to a hindered prayer life. God also promises to forgive us of our sins, but not to stop the consequences of our choices. God promises to forgive us of sin, but not to stop the consequences of our choices. So, right, First John gives us that promise. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But we can't err on the side of, as we're talking about confession, confession doesn't become your easy way out of things as a believer. So I don't want you to walk away thinking, okay, I, I sin, I confess that sin, God's obligated to forgive me, and then all the consequences are removed. Like he has to listen to my prayers again. He has to forgive me. He has to bring blessing upon my life. Nowhere in Scripture are we promised that we get to avoid the consequences of our choices, right? Psalm chapter 51, David's cry out to God for forgiveness. I mean, that's in the midst of his sin with Bathsheba and her losing her son. And that prayer does not result in the salvation of her son as far as his physical life, right? He dies. Bathsheba's son dies. He doesn't, get to, he doesn't get to do the act and then cry out to God for forgiveness and now God has to say, you know what? I was ready to bring discipline and now I don't get to because you've confessed and you've repented and so we forgive you, but we know that you're gonna do this again and you're always gonna confess it just in time to avoid the consequences. God never promises to, to protect us from the consequences of the discipline. And God sees right through that type of confession and not to say that David's confession was even ungenuine. David's confession was absolutely genuine. Right? Achan's another guy. You read the story of Achan? Joshua comes to Achan and he says, glorify God, praise God, and tell us what you've done. Confess your sin of taking the, the, the jewels and the gold and the clothing. And Achan cries out and says, this is what I've done. Like, I was wrong. Achan doesn't get excused for that, right? Like, he gets stoned to death because of his actions. Because a lot of people lost their lives because of his sin. And he's judged for it. We escape condemnation, Right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there is discipline for those who are in Christ Jesus as well. So confession doesn't become this this secret superpower that we get to use to avoid the consequences of sin. And we confess our sins. We desire change through that confession. But man, we still may be subjected to some of the discipline and the consequences if we aren't careful. Summary. This looks so much shorter on my notes than it does on that screen. While our sins have been forgiven completely, we are not yet made perfect or without sin on a daily basis. While confession is not our attempt to avoid the consequences of sin or to earn God's forgiveness, right? Like it doesn't, you're not having to conjure up the best confession ever through your prayer in order for God to forgive you. We are told to regularly confess our sins in order to experience regular cleansing and healing as a means of being conformed to Christ's image. Regular, con- regular confession helps us to avoid beating ourselves up over our failures, but also helps us to avoid letting ourselves off the hook by ignoring our failures. Right? We want to avoid those two extremes. We don't, want to, we don't want Christians who, every time they sin, they question, how in the world could God love me? I'm such a failure. Right, like constantly living in a state of, of, of being beaten up by themselves for their failures. We also don't want the other side where somebody is just flippantly like, 
Who cares? Like, God's forgiven me. Like, I don't have to be concerned at all about my sins. I shouldn't really feel any guilt or remorse over the things that I do because I'm in Christ and I'm completely forgiven. We want to avoid this, this, this state where we're letting ourselves off the hook constantly by ignoring our failures, but we don't, be, we don't want to become so hypersensitive that we can't let it go ourselves, even though God says, I've forgiven you, right? There's a happy medium in between there where we are sensitive to the sin in our life, we're confessing it, we're experiencing the cleansing and the healing that comes from that, the, the restoration of the joy of our salvation that comes from that, so that we can better even help others who are mired in sin too. Confession and repentance. It's a, it's a, it's a part of the, the, the regular walk of a believer post-salvation. Let's talk briefly about some marks of true confession and repentance. And we'll wrap up with this. I want you to see this because I want you to see this in light of like what, what your attitude should be both towards God in your actions but also towards others in your life. And this is stuff that we want to teach our kids as well, like the right attitude of confession and repentance. What are some things that you guys shared this morning in the discussion groups that are indicators to you of a genuine apology, a genuine confession of wrong? So my group uh, came up with a few. Um, uh, Jen brought up a good point of someone going away from a situation where they know they've done wrong, thinking about it, and then coming back to it with an appropriate response that they came up with to apologize and, I, and correctly identifying what they know that they've done wrong. Okay. Um, Other marks of true confession and repentance? Uh, we decided that a change in behavior, like if you just say, I'm sorry, but you just keep doing the same thing that you have to keep apologizing for. make it in time for groups, but I know that <coughs> when I've had to apologize for something, the times that I've tried to make excuses, it wasn't sincere. So right. I would say not making excuses right. um, for the behavior. We talked a little bit about the importance of humility, not just for the person confessing, but also for the person being confessed to. sorrowful over the actual pain that you've caused the person and not over the consequences of the sin that you committed. Good. Let me share with you four that I wrote down that I think probably encompass a lot of the things that you, talk, you talked about in your groups this morning. Number one, there's an absence of excuses and blame. There's an absence of excuses and blame. Um... You know, Adam and Eve are, are a great example of this when sin's first committed in in human history and, and God's addressing it, right? There's no there's no desire to confess and repent by Adam and Eve. They're hiding it, right? They're trying to conceal it, which is what David talks about not doing, right? They're covering themselves in, in leaves and hiding in the bushes and, and trying to avoid God's presence, but God calls them into the light. And once they come into the light, we see that they're not ready to truly confess and repent because immediately as he works himself down the line, there's the, the, the excuses and the blames for why they've acted the way that they have, right? That, that Adam says, God, it's your fault because you gave me her to be my wife, right? Like, like I would have chosen her. Like I would have made her different. I would have done something different. You, you created her. You gave her to me, and she's the one that, that caused me to do this. And, and then Eve immediately wants to blame the serpent and, and the deception that, that he gave to her. And, and, and there's, there's a lot of excuses and a lot of, of blaming, right? And, and I think, especially for me, I'm, I'm guilty of this all the time. When I do something wrong, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to always look for ways to, to validate my behavior or to excuse my behavior, to justify my behavior, or at least to make it look less offensive for why I've done the, what I've done, right? Like, but at the end of the day, like, nobody cares how tired you are or how sick you were or how annoyed you were leading up to that event, right? Like, all that does is minimize how somebody else feels about what you did. 
right? Like the hurt that I experienced from you, you're trying to minimize it and tell me, you're trying to tell me that I shouldn't feel as hurt as I feel because you were having a bad day or you were tired or you were sick or you were annoyed or whatever excuse or blame you can come up with. Man, true confession starts with eliminating the excuses and the blames. And, and for me, like this hits home for me personally because, because this is still something that I've got to learn because I'm very quick to come up with excuses and blames for my actions. I, I'm a pro at it. I'm a pro at it. True confession removes the excuses and the blames, right? Number two, there's a presence of humility and responsibility. So there's an absence of excuse and blame. There's a presence of humility and responsibility. James chapter 4, verse 6. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Man, for us to truly confess and repent, not just to God, but to each other as well, it requires an attitude of humility that oftentimes our sinful flesh just pushes against, right? Like when we look for excuses or look for blames, we're certainly not going to humble ourselves and admit wrongdoing. But true confession has a strong presence of humility and responsibility. Going back to that passage in Psalm chapter 51, Look what David starts off by saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He realizes that, that he's, he deserves judgment for his actions, right? For I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Man, can you imagine how, how we would never reference Psalm 51 if David starts off by talking about the fact that it was Bathsheba's fault for being on the, the top of the, the building taking a bath when he was outside? Can you imagine, like, we would never reference this passage as a great passage of repentance and confession if it was laced with excuses for why David acted the way that he did, Right? He, he embraces responsibility here. He admits this was my doing, my doing alone. I made the choice. Now, there may be contributing factors, right? Like, I, like we should all admit that if we're tired, sick, if we're having some, some difficult circumstances throughout the day, we are more susceptible to sinning, right? Like, I want to get to the state of mind where if I've had a difficult day at work, and I've had to discipline kids all day long, and it's been a hard day, and I am tired, that I recognize, man, when I go home tonight, there's a really good chance I'm going to be short with my kids, short with my wife, and really blow it at home tonight. So I ought to be prayerful in preparing for an environment where I'm going to be more susceptible to sin. Whereas what we like to do is post actions is say, man, I had a hard day at work. I disciplined kids all day. I had, I had it rough and I was up late last night and I'm tired all day. And now this is why I'm acting the way that I am. And the flip side is that we recognize, hey, there's going to be contributing factors to why we do what we do. You best prepare yourself to act differently in light of those, those, those factors, right? David, Dave, David takes responsibility here. True confession and uh, repentance really involves me admitting, listen to this, it was absolutely unnecessary for me to do it. That's what confession and repentance is. It's saying it was absolutely unnecessary for me to do that. There's, there's no excuses. There's, no, there's no, nothing to blame here. It was unnecessary for me to do it, and I chose to do it. There may have been contributing factors, but it was unnecessary for me to do that. Number three, there's an admittance of guilt. There was a choice to do the wrong thing. And it doesn't need to be explained. It doesn't need to be excused. It doesn't need to be understood. It needs to be forgiven. Man, if we take the approach that the choice that we made, the sinful choice that we made, the goal is for it to be forgiven, 
not to be explained, not to be excused, not to be understood, but to be forgiven. I mean, that radically changes the perspective and, and, the, and the way that we approach that conversation. Man, don't explain to me the choice. Don't, don't try to help me understand the choice that you made. Explain to me what happened so that I can forgive you. There's an admittance of guilt. And then number four, there's a desire to make things right. We've already talked about Zacchaeus. He's a great example of this. He's a guy who recognized his wrongdoing, and he was a guy who was committed to making it right. True confession is not sorrow over being caught or regret over the consequences you are receiving. True confession is not sorrow over being caught or regret over the consequences you are receiving. It's a desire to make things right. No excuses. Full of humility. Full of responsibility. An admittance of guilt. And a desire to make things right. Application. Number one, what sins do you repeatedly struggle with and are you regularly confessing them? I mean, it's worth asking ourselves, is part of the problem or part of the reason that we keep doing some of the things that we do is because we don't confess them like we should? And not just giving verbal lip service to it, but really stepping back and confessing the sin like like David does in the book of Psalms. Second question, this one's one's hard. Um, but I think potentially necessary because I, I, if you're like me and you're mired in pride, then, then you say, okay, I'm going to start confessing my sin. I'm not really sure where to start. Like, I'm not sure that I have that much to confess, right? Like if, if you're as mired in pride as, as, as me, you may need some help in even knowing what it is you should be confessing because you become so blinded to some of the stupid things that you do that others need to, to go ahead and jump in and help. Even if they still have a log in their eye, it would probably do you good for them to step in and help. This, this would be a, a, an extremely humble activity for you guys to engage in in your accountability groups. For you to ask others. Like, we're, we're great at, hey, how'd you struggle this week? How'd you struggle this week? How'd you struggle this week? What are some goals that you have for your life? But for us to step back and say, hey, can you guys tell me Can you girls tell me, based on what you know about me, areas that God still needs to work on in me? Like, we're good at coming up on some of those things on our own and and potentially masking some of the areas that are obvious to everybody else. Do you think you might be oblivious to certain sins in your life, and would you be willing to have others share them with you? I I challenge you to consider this for your next upcoming accountability group to be open and honest with each other enough, and everybody comes with an attitude of humility and ready to receive that type of correction and instruction, but to ask others, hey, are there any glaring areas in my life that I never confess in this group that you guys just keep waiting for me to bring up? Like, when's it gonna dawn on me that I should be confessing these things because all of you guys see it and you just allow me to confess the other stuff or, or talk about the other stuff? I don't wanna be so oblivious to sin in my life that I never confess it because I just don't see it. And let's allow each other to help, help in this process, right? David talks about, man, I want to help teach transgressors to do it differently. Let's allow each other to help each other as well, potentially. Family worship questions, why should Christians confess their sins? And what virtues should we demonstrate when apologizing to others we sin against? We've talked about both of these today. I think it would be helpful to go back and help our kids that are old enough to understand some of these concepts to see some of the reasons why we confess our sins as Christians and what virtues do they need to learn to demonstrate an appropriate apology to others? Okay? I'm going to pray for us. Um, actually, I'm not going to pray for us right yet. Can I get Adam and Jeremy to pass these out? We may not have enough for everybody, so if you've got a spouse, y'all can share one. Um, this is from way back in the day when I was taking kids in Mount Gilead through a discipleship course that I was writing. Um, but it's, it's kind of a, a, a way to kind of step back and, and self-examine and walk through the act of confession. Um, so I wanted to give this to you guys and give you the opportunity to kind of read through it on your own as you're seeking to apply some of the things that we've talked about today. So I encourage you to take that, read through it, and uh, work to apply some of the things that you find there. Now I'm going to pray, and then Tyson's going to come and and lead us in song. 
Father, we thank you for the chance to reflect upon your word today. God, we do thank you so much for the salvation that's been extended to us. We thank you that through Jesus Christ, we have been set free from that condemnation. That we can rejoice and celebrate as we look towards Good Friday this week, knowing that Christ died on the cross for our sins and our iniquities have been forgiven. We thank you and praise you for our salvation. Father, for those in this room that have never confessed and believed in you, we ask that the Holy Spirit would would draw them and convict them to that point in their life. Father, as Christians, we pray that we would remain sensitive to sin through regularly confessing, that you would convict us by the Holy Spirit. You've, you've, You've sent the Holy Spirit to do that. So God, we ask that the Holy Spirit would do that in our life that we would be mindful of the responsibility we have to not hide our sins, to realize the potential danger of doing so would be to harden our hearts and fall deeper and deeper into sin and bear the consequences of those choices. God, give us humility to accept responsibility for our actions and to seek to make those things right, not just with you, but with those around us, to correct our behavior. And God, we ask that through this, you would, you would allow us to see a decrease in the regularity of sin in our life. We desire to be holy. We desire to be conformed to your image. And if we don't, God, make those our desires. We don't want to just escape consequences of our sins. We don't want to just avoid being caught. We want to be changed. We thank you for the forgiveness that you extend to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.